All right. Good morning, everybody. Happy July 4th weekend. Rainy, cold. Not like most July 4th weekends. <laughs> Very strange. The weather has been bizarre lately, hasn't it? Well, as Keith said, last week we started a new series in the book of Galatians, and we're picking up right where we left off last week. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there to Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. And as you make your way there, let me just give a quick recap of where uh, we've been so far, what's going on. Paul is very upset. In fact, the word that he uses is astonished. Last week, I called this Paul's angriest letter. Normally, Paul gives his greetings, and then he goes into this long list of all the things that he's thankful for about the church that he's writing to. But he doesn't say any thankful statements at the beginning of this letter. He just skips straight to, I am astonished that you are turning from the gospel that you originally received. Paul is upset because the Galatian church has fallen under the influence of a group of false teachers. And what these teachers were saying, the essence of their message, was that if you're going to be a real Christian, if you're going to actually be part of the family of God, legitimate member of the family of God, you have to follow the law of Moses. The law that's recorded in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And that means that even if you were born a Gentile, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a man, you're going to have to be circumcised. doesn't matter what age you are. It's got to happen. Uh, it means that you've got to eat kosher. You've got to eat the right foods and avoid the wrong foods, which means no shellfish. Sorry, lobster lovers. No shrimp, no pork, no mixing meat and dairy. Can't do that. It also means that you got to make sure that you observe all the proper holidays at the proper times in the proper ways. And if you don't, you're not part of the family. You're not a real Christian. That was the message of the false teachers. And Paul wrote to the Galatians to insist that the gospel of Jesus is better than that. Much better than that. Jesus has fulfilled the law of Moses, so now the law of Moses is no longer necessary. Now, what unites the family of God is not these external practices. The family of God is united by faith in Jesus, trust in him, and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. That is what unites the family of God. But unfortunately, these false teachers had a lot of influence. Obviously, they had um, transformed the Galatian church. And not only did they have influence on the ordinary folks of the Galatian church, they had even managed to influence Peter, one of the apostles. And so Paul had to call Peter out on that. And that's what the passage we're looking at today is all about, that confrontation between Paul and Peter. So, again, Galatians 2, verse 11. Before I read this, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this special letter in the New Testament that reminds us of how good the gospel is. And Lord, I pray if any of us have uh, lost our appreciation for the message that we first received, that through this uh, series you would awaken our love and our appreciation for the gospel. That you would remind us of how good the good news is. 
Lord, we invite you to work in each one of our hearts this morning. Encourage us, help us to know the truth, and uh, may we be set free by the, by the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Paul says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is talked about in other letters, and he's known as, uh, he's called the son of encouragement. He's basically the kind of guy who just overflows with positivity. Everyone around him likes him, but even Barnabas uh, was led astray by these false teachers. So Paul says that certain men came from James. What's that about? Well, James was one of the apostles. Uh, He was Jesus' brother, or half-brother. And he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was the Jewish believers. And so when it says that certain men came from James, it might mean that these were men who were involved in the Jerusalem church. Um, It could mean that there were some men who showed up who claimed James sent us and he agrees with what we're saying. But we need to recognize that just because Paul says that they came from James doesn't mean that they were actually saying things that James the Apostle approved of. It just means that they came from the Jerusalem area. They were Jews who identified as Christians. And uh, they showed up and they started to have a great deal of influence on the Galatian church. And one of the people that they influenced was Peter. Uh, Peter had been eating with Gentiles, but then he stopped doing that. It says that he began to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, when Paul calls them the circumcision group, he's making very clear that these were people who insisted that all male followers of Jesus must be circumcised, that the law in its entirety must be followed if you're going to be part of the family of God. This whole situation kind of reminds me of high school cafeteria dynamics. Some of us are probably all too familiar with them even now. Um, You know, you might have a... uh, a kid who actually enjoys eating with a certain friend, but that friend isn't regarded as very popular by a lot of the school. And so maybe if certain more popular friends are present in the cafeteria, then he won't sit with that friend. He'll withdraw from that friend, right? Because he so desires the approval of these more popular friends. Something like that might be what's going on with Peter. And Peter might not even be that conscious of what he's doing. It might be working very subtly on him, this influence of these people who he wants, he desires their approval. He wants them to, uh, to like him. Peter felt pressure to perform for them. Now the text says that he was afraid of them. And maybe it meant that he was literally fearful of them. But I think it's more likely that 
Fear here means something like reverence. He saw these as honorable men. Men who he, he wanted them to go, we like you, Peter. We, we approve of you. We agree with you. He desired that approval from them. It's also possible that there was another dynamic at work here. These men might have said some things to Peter that frightened him. And in order to understand what those things might be, we have to know a little bit about the political situation at the time. Remember, this was in the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, everyone was mandated to worship Roman gods, which is idolatry. However, there was one group that didn't have to do that. There was one group that had an exception, and that was the Jews, because the Jews for centuries had been monotheistic. They only believed in one god, and they believed that it was wrong for them to worship any other god. And so the Jews had this arrangement with the Roman Empire, which was you don't have to participate in the mandatory worship of our gods. You don't have to do that. The only rule is that when you worship Yahweh, you've got to put in a good word for the Roman Empire. And the Jews thought, well, that's a you know, pretty good level of religious freedom for us in the Roman Empire. And so they agreed to this arrangement, and they wanted to preserve that arrangement. But the Christian movement threatened to destabilize that whole arrangement, because now you had all these people claiming to follow a Jew who was executed by the Roman Empire, but they're not doing the things that Jews normally do. They're not keeping the law. And so there was this fear that unless the Christians look like Jews, then the Roman Empire is going to go, you can't, you have to worship the Roman gods. You're not real Jews. And that th there was a fear that that might put the religious exemption of the Jews as a whole in jeopardy. So these men from Jerusalem might have been very concerned about preserving the religious liberty of the Jews, and they might have been exerting pressure on the more Gentile Christian communities to follow the law so that the exemption is preserved and so that the Roman Empire doesn't get concerned and start persecuting them. That, that might be partially why Peter was afraid. But whatever the reason, Peter felt this really strong pressure when these men were around to act differently than he had been acting. You know, to avoid certain lunch tables at the cafeteria. And Paul considered this totally unacceptable. So he confronted him on it, to his face. Jesus gave us certain guidelines about how to handle conflict, and I, I've wondered if, if Paul actually abided by them here, because... He just calls them out in front of everybody. Uh, you know, Jesus suggested, you know, you should probably go to the person you have a problem with individually and talk to them first. But anyway, Paul's fired up, so he confronts Peter right to his face. And uh, this is what happens, continuing in... Uh, it crashed the computer. Oh, dear. All right, well, hope you guys have your Bibles. <laughs> All right, so continuing, verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 
We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So I want us to take a minute to appreciate how significant this is that Paul is confronting Peter. And this is like Captain America confronting Iron Man. You know, these are titans in the church, right? This is one, one guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament confronting another guy who wrote some of the New Testament. And I, I value the honesty of the New Testament in presenting that to us. There's something about that that, in my mind, adds to the authenticity of all of this, right? The, the New Testament is not written in such a way that it makes the apostles out to be these perfect people that we're supposed to bow down and revere, as many religious movements do with their leaders, right? It doesn't do that. It presents these men as real people who sometimes fought with each other, who sometimes believed the wrong things and needed to work them out. I think that's, that's uh, significant. So, <clears throat> this is a big deal. Paul notices what Peter is doing, calls him out, and he says, uh, let's see if I can find it here, working again, um, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. In other words, uh, you are ethnically Jewish, but a while ago, you stopped worrying about eating kosher. I saw it. I know that's what you did. But now, you've changed, right? He says, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, you might say, well, how is he forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He wasn't actually, you know, telling anybody, you've got to do this. But what he's saying is just in this subtle act of moving from away from eating with Gentiles, you are implying to the Gentiles that there's something wrong with them. This is a reminder of how seriously leaders need to take their actions, that the slightest acts can actually give people the wrong impression, right? You're pressuring Gentiles to follow the Mosaic law. Paul says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here is, hey, if you're really a Jew, you should know better than anybody else that you cannot be justified by following the law. Because you've actually tried to follow the law. And you know that you can't uphold the law. If justification before God, if belonging in the family of God is dependent on you keeping all of the law, then you're not in and nobody is. Right? You should know that if you're really a Jew. So, he says... We, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus. We, too, means we Jews. We, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. What Paul is saying here is Jew and Gentile alike are justified before God in the same way. It is by faith in Christ. It is by what Christ has done. Everybody's in the same boat. 
because if justification did come through the Mosaic law, then nobody would be justified. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. This part is a little bit confusing. We'll, we'll take it piece by piece. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. I'm pretty sure that what Paul is saying here is if, while we believe we are justified by Christ, we start eating with Gentiles, which would have been regarded as sin, according to Torah, if we start doing that, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? And his answer is no, absolutely not, because what Jesus done has changed things. Eating with Gentiles is not sin anymore. Continuing, he says, If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. What does he mean? What he's talking about rebuilding is the wall between Jews and Gentiles. The wall of separation. He says, if I build that up again, then I prove that I am a lawbreaker. Why? Two, two possible reasons. One, because if you insist on keeping the part of the law that forbids you from eating with Gentiles, you have to follow all of the law, not just that part of the law. Nobody does that perfectly. And so, in insisting on this one part, you're turning yourself into a lawbreaker. That's one possibility. The other possibility is because if you rebuild that wall and say, oh, no, 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 we can't eat with Gentiles then inevitably, the question becomes, then why did you think it was okay right before now? Right? You broke the law when you were eating with Gentiles earlier. Right? So, Paul's saying, look, if you go back to insisting on this separation between Jews and Gentiles, you're condemning yourself. You're making yourself into a lawbreaker. Continuing. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. All right, again, I know there's a lot there. This could be confusing, but we'll do our best. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Notice, Paul's view of the law wasn't that the law was pointless or bad. It had a purpose, and its ultimate purpose was to help us live for God. But not in the way that most people assumed. Okay? The law didn't enable people to live for God by providing a set of rules that everyone could follow. Uh, what it did was it revealed that people could not live perfectly, that they could not uphold God, right, God's righteous standards, and that they couldn't justify themselves. And in doing that, it revealed the need for a savior. savior right? And now, through Jesus, we see that Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf. He has done what we could not do in our own power. And now we are free to live for God rather than for the law. 
I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What does Paul mean when he says, I have been crucified with Christ? You know, I, I've read all four of the Gospels, and I don't remember Paul being up there with Jesus on the cross, right? So what does that mean? What Paul is saying is that when Jesus crucified, it was like he died too, or an old version of himself died. Why? Because when Christ died on the cross, he fulfilled the law. And that meant that Paul, the law, the one who always strove to follow all the law, judgmental Paul, persecuting Paul, that Paul died. That Paul died. That rule-obsessed, judgmental man. He's gone. That man died because Christ died for him and fulfilled the law on his behalf. And now the new Paul finds life through faith in Jesus. Now I'd like to focus on that line, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that the way that you look at your own life? Can you honestly say that? This life that I live right now in my earthly body, it is guided by trust in the Son of God, who I know loves me and gave himself for me. Gave himself for me. I want us to, to focus on those words. He gave himself for me. You know, throughout history, human beings have had what you might call a religious impulse. And that religious impulse says, if I give something to the, the gods or to God, then I will appease them and they will have to do whatever I want, right? It, maybe if I, if I give something to them, uh, they'll give me a good harvest or they'll protect me in childbirth or they'll spare me from disease. The religious impulse says, what can I do? What can I do to earn God's favor? What can I give? to earn God's favor. But the gospel challenges that natural religious impulse because of, instead of saying, what can I give to gain God's favor? It says, God gave himself for me. It begins with the grace of God. Now, as I said last week, that doesn't mean that anything goes for a Christ follower. That the way we live our lives doesn't matter. That uh, morality doesn't matter at all. That's not what that means. If we really have faith that God has given himself for us, we should feel compelled to give ourselves to him. When we realize the extent of God's grace, we should be freed from sin. We shouldn't want to live for sin anymore. We shouldn't live for sin and selfishness, it should inspire us to live for God, as Paul puts it. I'm reminded of the beginning of um, Les Miserables. I'm sure many of you have seen the play or the movie. 
in it the main character, Jean Valjean. He's just been released from prison after 19 years. And he is angry and bitter and homeless. And one night he's given shelter by a bishop. And in the middle of the night, he gets up and he steals all of the bishop's silverware and, uh, and leaves with it. But before he gets very far, the police find him. And they bring him back to the bishop. They realize he's got all this silverware. They're pretty sure that he took it from the bishop. And, you know, the bishop has every right to be furious at him, to tell the police to throw the book at him. But when they show up, he says, oh, well, I gave Jean Valjean that silverware. And he says, but police officers, I am so glad that you brought him back because he forgot to take the silver candlesticks. And he grabs the candlesticks and he pushes them over to Jean Valjean. And, you know, Jean Valjean is just, what is going on? He's stunned. He's never, he's never experienced grace like this. And so the, the police shrug and they leave. And then the bishop looks Jean Valjean right in the eyes as he pushes the rest of that silver into his hands. And he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver I have bought your soul. I have ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. And that scene is a beautiful analogy of the gospel. Right? The bishop shows grace to Jean Valjean. Undeserved, unmerited favor. But then that grace is transformative. Jean Valjean doesn't just go back to living this self-centered life, this life of bitterness and, and anger and thievery. As the bishop says, this act buys his soul. It transforms him. It's an act of grace that has transformative power in his life. It ransoms him from fear and hatred. When we understand the grace of God, when we understand that Jesus has given himself for us, that should also buy our souls. It should ransom us from fear and hatred. It should make us say, now I belong to God. My life belongs to him. Can you say that with Jean Valjean? Can you say that with Paul? God loves me and gave himself for me, and now I belong to God. I, I love uh, Paul's last sentence in this passage. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, whether they intended to or not, the circumcision group was implying that Jesus' death was pointless. Right? Because it didn't change anything in their minds. It didn't fulfill the law on our behalf. It didn't set us free from any of the regulations of the law. It did not bring down the wall between Jews and Gentiles. It didn't open the family of God so that it was bigger. It didn't bring Jews and Gentiles together around the same table. It didn't do any of that. What did it do? In their minds, it didn't do anything. And, you know, death sure is a, hard, a high price to pay for nothing, right? 
So Paul is saying if we emphasize the law instead of the grace of God, we make Christ's sacrifice pointless. But Christ's sacrifice was not pointless. It brought the law to completion. It opened wide the gates to the family of God. It ransoms us from fear and hatred and buys our souls. I love how this passage reminds us of that. But here's the other thing that our passage this morning reminds us of. It reminds us how easy it is to drift away from that central truth. Because if Peter could drift, surely we could, right? Peter, one of the 12 disciples, lived with Jesus for three years. Peter, a witness to the resurrected Christ. Peter, the guy who walked on water, the only disciple who did that. Peter, the guy who had a vision straight from God that God was declaring unclean foods clean. And after he had that vision, he was the first disciple to go into a home of a Gentile, to Cornelius, to share the gospel with him. So if Peter could drift from the gospel message and need to be corrected, then surely we can drift as well. You know, sometimes, sometimes people go to church most of their lives and they think, I just keep hearing the same thing over and over again. But the truth is, we kind of need to hear the same thing over and over again. Because <laughs> look at Peter, you know, it happens. We can drift from this core message of the grace of God. It is so, so easy to do that. And one of the things that does that is peer pressure and the desire for the approval of others and fear. Those are all things that lead us to emphasize law instead of the grace of God. And, you know, wherever we go, it doesn't matter where we go. Anywhere there are other people, those forces are at work. In the church, outside the church, wherever we go, there's pressures. But Paul is saying, do not let those forces direct you. Don't let them control you. Let this truth be the thing that controls you. The Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again this week for these reminders of the beauty and goodness of the gospel. Lord, I pray that if any of us uh, have a, a shallow picture of your grace and of your love and of the power of what you did on the cross, that you would begin to open our minds and our hearts to the truth to see you as you are, to see the good news for what it is. We thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice, which ransoms us, which buys our souls and frees us from sin and fear and hatred. Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us more like your Son and, and make our church a church that is more and more a reflection of your heart for the world. In Jesus' name, amen.